Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, a familiar name returns to the Canadian retail landscape on Thursday. 12 Zellers locations will open up inside existing Bay stores in Alberta and in Ontario. More to come later. The colors will be familiar, even some of the merchandise. The food is back, but in smaller portions. But there are some surprises. We speak with someone who's had a sneak peek. The Member of Parliament for Don Valley North resigned suddenly from the Liberal caucus late Wednesday. That after a new report from Global News citing intelligence sources said that Han Dong had privately advised a senior Chinese diplomat in February 2021 that Beijing should delay releasing two Canadians held prisoners because it would benefit Liberal Party opponents. He denies the report, but does it make the case for a public inquiry into the allegations of election interference by China even stronger? But first, we prepare for the latest presidential visit to Canada. Joe Biden will arrive in Ottawa on Thursday. First, we look back at the colorful history of presidential visits to this country, one that only dates back 100 years to 1923, when President Harding stopped in Vancouver on his way back from Alaska. And we speak to the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman, about all the preparations going on behind the scenes to make sure the visit is a success. It has been a busy day. We're all getting ready for President Biden's visit to Ottawa tomorrow, his first official visit. He was here last, I think, back in late 2016. After the election, after the election that that elected Donald Trump, he had come to Canada as vice president for a final sort of tour. Uh, But he's back now for the first time. I was looking back at the time that I spent in Ottawa because I was a parliamentary correspondent for about uh, for four years. And it turns out the whole time I was there, uh, there was not a single official uh, presidential visit. That's when uh, President Bush was in power. And um, yeah. I, it seems I've missed them. It seems I've missed them. So so there you go. I have seen other presidential visits elsewhere, obviously. Uh, it is always a very big deal in Ottawa. I know we sort of downplay it a little bit when it was announced. Everyone was like, oh, the president's coming. But it is really, uh, it is really quite, the, quite the scene to see. Um, Biden arrives in Ottawa tomorrow. It'll be a 24-hour visit that will include an address to Parliament, a dinner and a dinner at the Canadian Aviation and Space Museum. He'll speak, uh, obviously, with our Prime Minister. Um, He'll also speak to the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polyev. He's going to speak to some other politicians as well. Uh, Today, the White House news briefing was focused on President Biden's visit to Canada. That doesn't always happen. We don't often hear Canada during the White House news briefing, so that was something uh, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby was asked what uh, what Biden's message was here and, and why had it been so long since he had arrived. Uh, again, they're going to arrive tomorrow, he and First Lady Jill Biden, uh, for their first official visit to Canada since Biden took office in 2021. This is a meaningful visit. Canada is one of the United States' closest allies and friends and has been now for more than 150 years. This will be the first true in-person bilateral meeting between the two leaders in Canada since 2009. So, yeah, there's a difference between the bilateral meetings and the more informal meetings and so forth. Barack Obama made a one-day trip to Ottawa back in 2016 as well as his presidency was coming to an end. The U.S. ambassador at the time was Bruce Heyman. Uh, his he was there between 2014 and early 2017, and he was also there when now President Joe Biden made that stop I was just referring to in December of 2016 when he spoke to a dinner in Ottawa and uh, had some kind words for this country. And uh, Bruce joins me now from Montreal. Thank you so much, Ambassador. I appreciate your time. 
Pleasure to be with you. How is Montreal? I, I noticed you were in Canada as well, so it sort of feels like everyone's come home for a bit. Exactly. Uh, I love Montreal. What a wonderful city. Good food, rich culture, the beautiful province of Quebec. Uh, it's really great, and I have a lot of good friends here. So tell me a bit about what it's like when a president comes to town, because I, I know it's a bit like a duck, right? You see it kind of along the surface. You know it's pretty calm, but underneath you must be paddling hard. The embassy is um, going crazy. Uh, they're working on so many details. You have the details of, obviously, security. You have teams of people who have come in from Washington that have been camped out in town for for probably a few weeks now and going through logistics. You have teams of people who are working with the Canadians on all of the step-by-step tick-tock of each, each movement and rehearsals of that. You have lots of discussions going on with regard to the issues um, that will be raised in the various uh, bilateral meetings. You have speech writing and review of the speeches that will be made. Uh, I'm assuming there's going to be a speech in addition to Parliament. Uh, there'll be a speech in other locations, maybe dinner on uh, Friday night. And, yeah. um, and so there's just tons of work. It's a lot of stress. It's a bit of, you know, uh, organized chaos taking place. And it all comes together. Um, as it always does around the world. Uh, situations in Canada will be a, a lot less complicated than some other locations where security issues might be even greater than they are whenever a president travels. They're great, but greater in other places. And it's an easy flight from Washington, so it's not a long journey. And so, you know, this is a celebration of the partnership, the friendship, allies, best friends, neighbors, largest trading partner. You know, we can go on and on. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, the president was in Kiev not that long ago, so I can imagine this will be far less uh, far less stressful for at least uh, mm-hmm. his planners. But, but yeah, it's, I mean, tell me a bit about what it's like to have a president in Ottawa, because I think sometimes we forget that it is a really big deal when a president comes to town. You know, one of the things I really enjoyed both on both sides. So I also welcomed uh, Prime Minister Trudeau for the state dinner that President Obama had in his honor and the bilateral meetings that took place in Washington. And as you went around Washington, you saw, you know, um, Canadian and American flags together all around Washington. So when I was ambassador, it was such a proud moment. Uh, today, um, there are going to be lots of American flags all over Ottawa, along with the Canadian flags. And again, I had seen that as ambassador. Whenever a foreign head of state would come into town, you'd kind of know who was coming by the flags that were put up, you know, the day or two before. Um, but the town is alive. Uh, streets get blocked off. I'm sure it's frustrating for some folks. Um, but, you know, there will be a lot of people out just wanting to get a glimpse, say hello. And what will be interesting to me is there's a great story of President Obama coming into Ottawa and just getting out of the car and yeah. walking in and buying some cookies at a local, you know, bakery. Will Joe Biden do something similar and create some kind of legacy of some kind of establishment 
perhaps a sweets or ice cream establishment, which is he does have a sweet tooth in that regard. And uh, will he will he create will he create that moment? That picture of Barack Obama buying those cookies is still up in that bakery, if I remember correctly. Many, many, many years later, it's sort of the the claim to fame of the place. I think the cookie's still named after him, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the Obama cookie. But boy, does he look young in those pictures. I mean, you know, relative to how he looks now, it's amazing how uh, the office ages you. Yes, I think he said on his last visit in 2016 that Michelle began to refer to his hair as the Great White North. So that was the uh, <laughs> uh, after his time in office. You, you spent time with Joe Biden. What are his views of Canada? Because uh, you know he's been he's been in politics for so long. But what, how does he hold that relationship? Yeah, you know I I've spent quite a bit of time with Joe Biden. I spent time with him on the campaign trail when he was first running with uh, Barack Obama uh, for president and vice president. I spent time with him uh, after he became vice president. Vicky and I, um, my wife, partner, and best friend, uh, um, went to the state dinner in honor of Angela Merkel, and we happened to sit with uh, Joe Biden and, uh, and Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell and, and his wife. And so we spent time with him in Washington. We spent time with him in Vancouver when he came for the Women's World Cup and celebrating the Women's World Cup. And so, you know, um, I have been on video calls with him. I've been on conference calls. He loves Canada. He truly loves Canada. He thinks the world of Canadian people and, and the allyship and the friendship. And, you know, it's I I think. He especially appreciated when the prime minister hosted that state dinner for him after the election, um, just before the end of his term as vice president. And boy, is that paying dividends for um, the prime minister now? Without question, they'll be talking about issues of migration, which affects us both. I mean, there are more people on the move in this hemisphere than there have been since World War II, and that affects both our countries. John Kirby there, the uh, spokesperson at the White House today. The White House briefing was about Joe Biden's visit to Canada, which starts tomorrow, a big time, a big deal always. There is, of course, always business on the agenda. Bruce Heyman is the former ambassador to Canada. He's in Montreal tonight. And we're talking about the visit. So on the business side of things, clearly, I mean, you've been following this, I know. Uh, safe third country agreement and migration is up there. Do we expect to see, do we see any kind of movement on these issues during the actual visit or has all the work already been done? So uh, little inside baseball, how this works here. Um, Much of the agreements that will be reached during the visit have already been baked. Right. And they've gone back and forth and they've reached agreement and they're working on wording and language. When uh, President Biden welcomed Prime Minister Trudeau to the White House, those agreements were still being written and there were arguments, no arguments, disagreements on language and wording and commas and all of this to the point where we were standing in line at the White House waiting to go out and welcome the prime minister. And the debate was going on between members of the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and Christopher Freeland on 
language that they could agree to. And finally, literally standing outside, the prime minister's there, the White House lawn and everything. And I saw the two of them look over each other and thumbs up. We got it. We worked it out. That's how much they can be worked on up until the last minute. I would say there are chances and things that things can be amended during those conversations that will take place, personal conversations, but big time agreements and the announcement of all the things that they will have agreed to much of that's already baked. Yeah. Down to the commas and so forth. Where do you expect, I know you don't have a crystal ball, none of us do, but where would you expect to see some movement here? There's been talk about migration, obviously Uh, John Kirby was speaking about it today. There's been talk about Haiti. Uh, There's the buy America, buy American clauses and so forth. There are some, some irritants, China, Ukraine, there are some irritants and some agreements out there. Where, where would you expect to see uh, some announcements over the next 24 hours? Well, I, I hope we see announcements on many of these, but in, in reality, um, my guess is the, the place that I would hope the most right this minute is that we get some better understanding of, of defense spending and commitment. And whether that's, you know, more for NORAD, Ukraine, um, you know, training facilities, we do so much together. And right now, Canada is way low and it's its commitment to military relative to its nato commitment that it made and in fact it's one of the worst in terms of um, dollar expenditures relative to gdp of all of the nato members and we're facing some fairly significant demands in supporting ukraine right now and so it wouldn't surprise me if there were some New movement in that regard. I you you heard it from the White House mentioned. This has been a subject though that we've talked about with Canada, regardless of who's president, almost every year. Yeah, it's a long time. It's been a long time. This one as well. Any other movement? I mean, some of the things on the Canadian side um, include include the migration issue. I know that's a big one in the U.S. and it's hard to obviously hard for them to deal uh, just with the Canadian aspect of all this. Uh, but do you expect any movement on some of the things on the Canadian side? It, it, it's hard to say what specifically will come out of the migration side. Now, it, it's altogether possible that Canada announces that they will take in maybe some new uh, immigrants from Latin America. You've been very good at taking in immigrants in Syria when there was a crisis, very good with Ukraine. The question is, uh, we're getting, we, the United States, are getting really jammed at our southern border. And they're not really mostly, in fact, very few Mexicans. They're really coming in from Central America and South America. And so what do we do to help mitigate that? And we're going to need Canada's help. There may be movement on Haiti as well. This is a long-time discussion. And this is a real challenge in our own hemisphere. And it's something that we all agree that needs to be worked on. And I think Canada can be helpful there, especially with the French language component. Yeah, and, and when we look at, uh, then clearly there's other there global issues. You already mentioned Ukraine, and then, of course, there's chi- there's China. I imagine there'll, there'll be some, that will come up as well. Has to come up. Just think about the juxtaposition of seeing this week 
you see the number one and two countries in the world in terms of economy, military, et cetera, the United States and China. The United States is going and visiting its ally, Canada, and China is visiting its ally, Russia. Look at the picture here. Look at what that represents in terms of authoritarian government. Um, and then on the other side, democracy and the rule of law. And so, you know, um, it's it's going to be a stark contrast. And I think that one in which we we shouldn't take for granted. Any last thoughts for your all your former uh, all your former colleagues at the embassy tonight working hard, uh, no doubt burning the midnight oil as they get ready for this one? Gosh, no doubt. And they're, they're going to be very, very stressed. And, you know, my my only comment to, to all of them is keep doing it. it you, you, it's a reward that you'll carry with you for the rest of your life doing a presidential visit. You'll talk about it. You'll talk about it with your grandchildren. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's an important moment for the bilateral relationship. It's an important affirming your friendship, you know, we should never take our friends for granted, whether it's in your your family, if it's in your business, or if it's in your neighbor as a country. Don't take your friends for granted. Take a minute and, and celebrate your relationship, and that's what's going to happen this week. Well, Bruce Heyman, enjoy your time in Montreal, my hometown, and uh, thanks so much again for your time tonight. Pleasure. Be well. <laughs> We're talking about uh, U.S. president visits to Canada this hour. We spoke to the former uh, U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Before this, he was here, of course, in 2016 when Barack Obama came for a visit. He was also here in late 2016 when then Vice President uh, Joe Biden was here after the election of Donald Trump. So to the time, uh, his time in office was almost up and he came for a quick visit as well. Now, it turns out there's a long and storied history of official visits to Canada by U.S. presidents. But surprisingly, perhaps, the first one didn't happen until a century ago. In July of 1923, Warren Harding arrived in Vancouver by ship on his way back from Alaska following a long tour. He was greeted by tens of thousands of people in Stanley Park, and that set off something of a wave of visits over the last hundred years. So Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, not Ford or Carter, but Reagan on several occasions for the so-called Shamrock Summit in 1985. You might remember that one, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney hosting Reagan. And if you remember that one, you'll remember this. That was that was the prime minister. Everyone remembers that one, don't they? I mean, that must be perhaps the most uh, talked about of presidential and prime ministerial appearances on stage together. Bush Sr. visited, George W. visited, Clinton, Obama made his first foreign trip here in 2009, and again near the end of his term in 2016. He didn't do any singing, but he did talk about taking a walk through the Byward Market the first time he came. And on that visit, I strolled around the Byward Market, Tried a beaver tail, which is better than it sounds. And I was struck then, as I am again today, by the warmth of Canadians. I could not be more honored to be joining you in this historic hall, this Cathedral of Freedom. 
And we Americans can never say it enough. We could not ask for a better friend or ally than Canada. President Obama speaking to Parliament back in 2016. President Trump broke the mold a bit. He only came here once for the G7 in 2018. He was trash-talking the Prime Minister before he even left the country. Uh, But tomorrow, President Biden will make Canada the 18th country he has visited since he was elected and the 13th president, by my count, to come here. Different personalities, different leaders, different issues, different eras. It's all kind of played out over the course of of these visits. And who better to talk about it than someone who's actually looked into all of it and who's Great research. I just, I just lifted basically. Uh, Craig Barrett is the host of Canadian History X, a podcast, and he joins us now. Craig, thanks so much. Hey, no problem at all. Yeah, I mean that's a fascinating article that you wrote about presidential visits. I know it was a podcast as well. I didn't realize it was only a hundred years ago, back in 1923, that the first one happened, and it was a big success. The Americans were surprised about how warm their welcome in Vancouver was for President Harding. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, when you think about it. I mean, with Canada becoming a, an official country in 1867, you would have thought that somebody would have visited before that. And I mean, presidents did visit before they were president, like FDR, several times. But no, that first official visit in you know July 26, 1923, and even then, that was kind of a it was like a stopover because he was coming back from uh, from Alaska. Yeah, and he got a big he got a big ovation. I mean, it it probably uh, showed something about the relationship between the two countries, or at least how popular America, how well known American presidents are in this country. Well, without a doubt. I mean, you had a, a crowd of forty thousand, and they said it was one of the largest crowds of his entire tour. And I mean, that's saying a lot considering he was in Canada. He had a huge uh, event at the Hotel Vancouver where there were six hundred guests. He was very well received. I mean, he had the 21-gun salute. Everybody was coming out to see him. So it, it most likely did surprise a lot of Americans uh, how, you know, this huge celebration that we put on to for a president uh, kind of just stopping over. Yeah, and, and then Roosevelt uh, carried on. It was a while. I mean, Harding died soon after he had been here, unfortunately. Uh, but Roosevelt came here a lot. I mean, of course, it was the war years, right? But he came here a lot. He did, yeah. Well, he had uh, Campello, or Campello Island where he, you know, his family would vacation a lot. But even right. after that was sold, he did. He visited Canada as president eight times. Four times were his actual like, official visits. And then, like you mentioned, two of those were for the Quebec conferences during the Second World War. But he did visit quite a bit, and he got along you know, extremely well with uh, Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King during that time. And I think that probably played into it as well. Yeah, I mean, the relationship between the the different leaders is always an interesting dynamic in this because it kind of, there's so much read into what the relationship is like. And it reminds me that, of course, when when John F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy came to Canada, actually, and, and he and Diefenbaker did not like each, or at least they didn't seem to like each other much. Not at all. I, John F. Kennedy could not stand Ethan Baker. He called him extremely boring. He hated these uh, anecdotes that Ethan Baker would, you know, regale him with. But at the same time, Ethan Baker didn't like JFK. He found that he was hot-headed. He was, you know, too young. So these two leaders really didn't get along. It was a big change from Ethan Baker and Eisenhower, who would go fishing during official visits and got along extremely well. But yeah, JFK and, and uh, Ethan Baker, they were not friends. Yeah. And then just to fast forward a little bit, Nixon and Trudeau weren't for Pierre Trudeau, weren't friends either, but he but Nixon did toast the birth of Pierre's first son and said to the future prime minister, uh, and of course he was he was prescient, Richard Nixon. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean it's kind of funny to look back on that and, and see that, you know, that he did toast uh 
you know, Justin Trudeau when he was a baby, when he visited Canada. And you start to see kind of a change when Nixon and even when uh, Johnson visits, where it's not so much a celebration, you're getting more protesters rather than, you know, huge crowds. When Eisenhower and Truman and JFK were here, there are massive crowds to greet them and celebrate it. But things start to change. I think it was Johnson when he first had the uh, a bulletproof car. It wasn't an open convertible anymore. And so you start to see that relationship change. And with Richard Nixon, people were not happy to see him. Uh, the Secret Service weren't allowed to bring their guns into the House of Commons. There were no deliveries for food that day because so many people were unhappy that Richard Nixon was visiting in 1972. Yeah, the politics really started to come in. I mean, the war in Vietnam. Um, all you know, there were a lot of draft dodgers here, or you know, whatever whatever the proper term is. Now I'm using the old term, uh, but there were a lot of people who opposed the war in this country, and 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 obviously the politics would start to come into these visits, and and the division over Vietnam, of course, between America and Canada would come into play too. Absolutely. And I always found it kind of strange how Nixon visited when Trudeau was uh, prime minister and Ronald Reagan visited with Trudeau being prime minister uh, and they didn't really get along with him. But the two that actually did get along with him, you know, relatively well with Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter never made a visit to Canada. That's right. They didn't. Uh, they kind of broke the mold. I mean, I guess, well, Gerald Ford wasn't in power for very long. And then Jimmy Carter had all kinds of things on his plate. But w- when did it when did that tradition of making making the first trip to Canada begin? Or was it never really a tradition? Because we talked about it a bit when Donald Trump didn't do it. But was it a real tradition that they would come here first? I think it was more just kind of an expected thing, just because of our close relationship between the two countries and the fact that you know we're literally across the St. Lawrence River, especially from you know their perspective. And so I think in some ways, some presidents came very early. I know that uh, Eisenhower came very early and John Kennedy came very early, even Lyndon Johnson in 1964, you know, relatively early after he became president. But then you kind of start to see a shift with Nixon. I mean, it was uh, he became president, I think, in 68 or 69, but he didn't show up until 1972 then you don't have two uh, presidents show uh, coming to visit and then ronald reagan doesn't come to or comes in 1981 so he was a bit closer but i think it was just something we expected and i think as canadians we expected that well this will be the first place you visit because you know our country is your best friends essentially and we're right next door forget that one. I was only about 14 when that summit happened. The Shamrock Summit, they called it back in 1985. Ronald Reagan was visiting uh, the new Prime Minister, Brown Mulroney, at the time. And of course, uh, there was an attempt to reset the relationship, right? Um, right now, Craig Baird is with us. He's host of the Canadian History X podcast. We're talking about the history of presidential visits to Canada. The first one, William Harding back in 1923, just to stop over in Vancouver on his way back from Alaska by ship. But many, many more have followed. When you look at all of them, that strikes me. And maybe it's just my age. You know, I I'm, I'm, was born in 1970. So, to me, that's the most, that to me is the most um, iconic moment of a presidential visit, good and bad. Oh, oh without a doubt. Uh, it's, it stands head and shoulders above all the rest. I mean, I don't think people can probably name most of the uh, presidential visits, but a lot of people would probably be able to name the Shamrock Summit. I mean, it has its own name, which no other presidential visit does. Yeah, tell me a bit about, about, I mean, you looked into it, right? And you wrote quite extensively about it in your history. You kind of, that's the one you focused on most closely. Um, 
what was it about and 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 how, and how did that how did that how did the song come about well it was kind of it was the first visit for for uh Reagan when Brian Mulroney was prime minister i mean Mulroney had only become prime minister the year before so this was a major visit especially because with Trudeau it, you know, there wasn't always the greatest relationship with the presidents. So they really wanted to put this as a way to mend that relationship. And that's why it was so, so visible. And they had the party, which is another thing you didn't really see. Usually it was, you know, you'd have a, a banquet or something like that. This was a very big, extravagant affair. But I mean, they were dealing with things. They were dealing with the Dewey line. They were talking about an acid rain contract. And especially they were starting to move towards free trade, which would become a major part of Brian Mulroney's uh, latter part as prime minister. And I think this was part of that to show, look how close we are as countries. Why should we, why, why shouldn't we have free trade and, and be trading like that? And, you know, in many ways it's very orchestrated, but it's in sharp contrast to the protesters who were following the route uh, because they were unhappy with Reagan and acid rain and things like that. And then you have that moment where they're all singing when Irish eyes are smiling. And I mean, Brian Mulroney has an excellent voice. So he does, but in many ways it feels like you're at a family reunion and it's your uncle singing karaoke or something. It's so out of the ordinary of what you would have expected from a presidential visit. Yeah, I was watching the video today. There's uh, there's Nancy Reagan on stage as well. Mila Mulrooney was on stage. They were all there. It was part of a bigger uh, event. I mean, they just got on stage and sang with the cast, right? It was. Uh, mm-hmm. But he took a lot of heat. For, I mean, it was a reminder when that happened that there is Canadians have a delicate line between how these visits matter to us in ways where the little symbols matter too. Like you could be close, but don't be too close. Celebrate, but don't celebrate too much. You know, protest, but don't go. Don't protest too much. It's sort of you know. It's a bit like having a dinner guest over that you that you that you like and don't like at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, when Nixon and Trudeau met, and Nixon was calling Trudeau an egghead, and Trudeau was saying that you know he's been called worse by better people. In many ways, that felt kind of like how it should be. Like, okay, well, we'll give as good as we get, but we'll still have a working relationship. You know, in in public, we'll still work together. Behind the scenes, we might not get along. But this was so overtly. Uh, out there that it did bother many people. Many people felt it was it was too intimate. It was it was improper in some ways, and some felt that it, it, Brian Mulroney was in some ways sucking up to to Reagan. It, it, so a lot of people didn't like it. And again, because it was unlike anything we'd seen before with a presidential visit, it it, it came out of nowhere. Yeah, and I guess Mulroney's argument always was that, that when it came to our relationship with America, you attract a lot more flies with honey than vinegar, right? That this was being nice to Ronald Reagan because there were things that Canada wanted to do and Canada wanted to be show itself to be an equal partner, and that was the way to do it. I noticed that no one else ever did that again, though. Not that way. No, not at all. But you are right. Like he did, he used it in some ways to get some things that he wanted passed. But especially the acid rain agreement was a big part of that. And it was, you know, having that relationship, that very good relationship. But you didn't see it again. I mean, you saw Clinton and Chrétien would go golfing and things like that. And that was something we, you know, we'd expect. It was two people hanging out. It wasn't two people singing on national television. Yeah, and now that as we as we move forward a bit, I mean, I was um, I always remember Barack Obama's first visit to Ottawa, where he got out of the car and went went into the Byward Market or walked around the Byward Market right near Parliament in Ottawa, and uh, bought a cookie. We were talking about that with the former U.S. ambassador to Canada, Bruce Heyman. Those pictures of Barack Obama having that cookie in that bakery are still there. I mean, they're still there, fourteen years later. What do you think about Biden visit will be like? He he tends to he can kind of go with the flow, can't he? 
I think because it's the first visit that we've really had. I mean, like you mentioned, Donald Trump was here, but he was here for the G7. So it wasn't really an official visit. And a lot of Canadians weren't fans of Donald Trump. And I think because Biden is coming after that, he's he was with Barack Obama. You might see a, a better response to it. But it also might be that a lot of people just don't care too much about it they've got other things going on we're dealing with inflation and all of that and so maybe it's just not as much uh, interest in it whereas somebody like barack obama who was young and dynamic and you know canadians knew who he was and we we're having a state visit and especially one that came so long after he really uh became president they're like this was his first official state visit was in 2016 essentially at the end of his presidency which is extremely unusual usually they just wouldn't visit like uh like the two presidents in the 1970s with uh, ford and uh, jimmy carter so i think with biden maybe because it is also after the COVID 19 pandemic you might see a bit more interest but uh it's hard to say really so when you look back at all this history, what, what would be the one moment you think is, uh, is the one we should – what's the one moment that stands out that's sort of exceptional, do you think? I guess the Shamrock Summit would be the one, but there must be others that you looked into as well that, that really stood out to you in terms of uh, special moments or at least quirky moments in these visits. Yeah, I think uh, well, one of my favorite moments is with Nixon and how the RCMP actually watered down all the snow outside of Parliament Hill so people couldn't make snowballs to throw at him, which I thought was very funny, but also really outside the box thinking. Like somebody was really thinking that this might happen. And so I just thought that was really funny that they did. And it seemed like a kind of Canadian thing to do, snow, throw snowballs rather than, you know, try and shoot somebody or something like that. Uh, but the Shamrock Summit definitely stands out above all others. But then certain things just behind the scenes with JFK and Deepen Baker and how much they disliked each other and how later on JFK kind of aids Lester B. Pearson's election bid to get him elected because JFK liked uh, Pearson much, much more than he liked Ethan Baker. Interesting. I mean, that's one aspect of that relationship that I did that I really didn't know was that was that uh, that hatred. I mean, it makes sense that hatred between Kennedy and Diefenbaker. Baker. I guess it was Roosevelt who was here the most often, right? I mean, if you pile up all those visits, when I look down the list, he was here many, many times. Yeah, he was here eight times. So four times were just uh, either a vacation or just stopping over, but then four official times. Uh, he didn't address Parliament, I believe, but uh, Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan both did twice. But definitely the most visits was uh, Roosevelt. He came here many times, and he came many times before he was president as well. Right. Well, Craig, uh, thanks so much for your time tonight. We look forward to you writing the next chapter of these visits uh, once uh, this uh, next 24 hours wraps up. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, there's been some big news coming out of Ottawa tonight. The Liberal MP for the Toronto area of Don Valley North resigned from the Liberal caucus late tonight and will sit as an independent. Handong is his name. Uh, he was elected back in 2018. Um, it came after allegations published today, a report published today by Global News reporter Sam Cooper, who's been on this story for a very long time about uh, and broken many stories around this uh, with intelligence sources talking about China's uh, interference, allegations of China's interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections. Um, this story today, so he was, Handong was already at the center of some Chinese influence allegations. This new report published today says that he, according to these intelligence sources uh, that were anonymous, says he privately advised a senior Chinese diplomat in February of 2021 that Beijing should hold off on freeing Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor 
And that is according to two separate national security sources uh, quoted in this story by Sam Cooper today. Both intelligence sources said Dong allegedly suggested to Han Tao, China's consul general in Toronto, that if Beijing released the two Michaels whom China accused of espionage, the opposition conservatives would benefit. At the time, the two Canadians had been in Chinese custody for more than two years. It was widely perceived they were jailed as retribution for Canada's detention of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou, who was facing extradition to the U.S. Sam Cooper, the uh, reporter on this story, spoke with Jazz Joe Hall on CKNW's Jazz Joe Hall show this afternoon. I was informed that CSIS learned, Mr. Don said, that uh, China should not release the Michaels at that time because this would uh, affirm the Conservative Party's uh, political stance at the time. And uh, yet, Mr. Don allegedly advised that China needed to show uh, some progress on the case. Mr. Don returned uh, a response to my questions and confirmed that he did have a call in February 2021 with Consul General Han Don. He disputes that he initiated the conversation he strongly denies that he advised that uh, China should uh, hold off on releasing the Michaels at that time. Sam Cooper, Global News reporter there, speaking to Jazz Joe Hall on the Jazz Joe Hall Show this afternoon. Now, just to recap what was going on here, Global News last month reported that CSIS had warned the Prime Minister's office before the 2019 election. Of course, I should say Han Dong was elected for the first time in October 2019 for Don Valley North, that they had received information that Dong had received assistance from the Chinese consulate when he successfully ran for the nomination, the Liberal Party's nomination in that riding. According to Global's reporting, the consulate bust in seniors and Chinese international students to vote for Dong in the nomination race that was contested by other Liberal candidates. Again, to recap today, New reporting citing anonymous national security sources uh, alleging that Dong had spoken with China's consul general in February 2021 to advise him that releasing the two Michaels too soon would help the conservatives. As Sam mentioned, Dong vehemently denied Global's story. He said he spoke with the consul general but urged him to release the two men as soon as possible. Well, late today, uh, earlier uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh uh, said these were very serious allegations that, in fact, uh, that uh, Handong should resign or at least should be turfed from Liberal caucus while these are investigated. Late today, Dong got up in the House of Commons and made this announcement. I rise on a point of order. I have informed the Prime Minister and the leadership of the Liberal Party caucus that I will be sitting as an independent at the conclusion of these remarks. Mr. Speaker, I'm in your hands as to what happens next. To all my colleagues in the Parliament, media reports today quoting unverified and anonymous sources have attacked my reputation and called into questions my loyalty to Canada. Let me be clear, what has been reported is false, and I will defend myself against these absolutely untrue claims. But let me assure you, as a parliamentarian and as a person, I have never and I will never and would never advocate or support the violation of the basic human rights of any Canadian. 
That was uh, former Liberal MP Han Dong uh, speaking tonight in Parliament uh, just a few hours ago. He will now sit as an independent. Lots to unbundle here. To help us do that is Karen Wood. She's co-founder of the Canadian Chinese Political Affairs Committee. That is a nonpartisan pro-democracy organization based in Toronto. Karen, thank you. Happy to be here, Ben. Good evening. Now, this was, I mean, just a reaction to everything that's happened today. First, the report and his resignation. It, uh, it all just unraveled very quickly for Han Dong tonight. Yeah, it certainly did. But I can say I'm surprised because when uh, Sam Cooper's report came out about three weeks ago, I knew Han Dong's day in the Liberal Party is going to be numbered. And let me just put this on record. It gives me absolutely no pleasure to see Handon take a fall like that. Um, I know him a little bit. We went to the same school, although he's a little bit older than me. So um, I just did not expect his exit in politics to end like this. Yeah, tell me a bit about. I mean, you know this subject well. You've talked about it. You're in Toronto. You understand how the council, the the council general, or the Chinese consulate works there. Uh, what what is what is going on between the relation? What would the relationship be between Handong and the consulate? I mean, clearly he's admitted to speaking to the consul general. He doesn't agree with how it's being reported, what was talked about, but he agrees to having spe- spoken with them. And it seems like the prime minister's office didn't know about this. Would that be? Would that be something that you would expect to hear? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I put, I have previously put out um, on my on my Twitter page, um, the Chinese consulate at the time um, when Mo Wanju, who the CFO of Huawei, was arrested, they spoke to a number of people, including parliamentarians, think tank. Um, researchers, people who work in politics, and usually just people who actually have a good pulse on things, all things, uh, Cana- all things Canadian, I guess, because it is in the consulate general's interest to understand um, how Canadians generally feel about this, although he may not have the power to act on it directly. So I think on that part, Hendon was absolutely being truthful. He, if he said he had a phone call with the consul general, then he absolutely did. But I would also like to remind your viewer that what has been printed in Global News today is allegations. I don't know how many people have read the full article, but if you do read the article from start to finish, you'll know that CSIS even came out to, to put this on the record, and their spokesperson said... At this time, they cannot confirm or deny whether Handon has urged the Chinese General Council to delay the release of two hostages. And let me be very clear, I don't believe Handon did that. Why? Because it is absolutely against the Liberal Party's interest to delay, these, uh, delay the release of the two Michaels. Yeah, I, I mean, why would Handon be working, some, uh, working, some, working against his own party's interest and his own chance of getting elected? Yeah, that part of the story, again, needs, you know, that, that part of the story, the, the motivation for saying that, because at first glance, it doesn't seem like um, detaining the two Michaels any longer would benefit anyone, let alone, let alone releasing them early would, wouldn't, benefit, wouldn't benefit the opposition, one wouldn't think. Uh, but there's still lots yeah. to, to, to answer in all this. That being said, I, I gather the, the, the buildup of this has, has meant that Handong had, had to step outside the Liberal Party. I guess you weren't surprised by that. Not at all. I mean, again, the resignation is really a euphemism for he was shown the door, right? 
I mean, for we anybody don't know. who has worked know. in, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've worked in politics for so long, so I shouldn't know these kind of yeah. things. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, him staying in the Liberal Party would cost the Liberals a lot, of, at least a few seats in the GTA. And it's just a terrible brand. It just He's just doing terrible damages to the Liberal brand right now. Not to say that the Liberal brand is already in trouble. So yeah. I think it's certainly wise for him to step outside of the caucus, sit as an independent, and try to clean, clear up his name. Yeah, what questions are left unanswered at this point? I mean, there's a lot of different allegations that have been surfaced about Handong over the past little while. He's not alone. The MPP, for the same riding, has, has been uh, has also been facing some ser- some serious allegations about interference, and he has stepped out of the Conservative Party in Ontario, uh, uh, Mr. Ke. Uh, but what questions would you still like to see answered now about what we learned today? Well, first of all, I can tell you, your your listeners, that Hendon and the Council General had absolutely no say in when and how the two Michaels were released. I mean, if you follow this as closely as I have, we know that it's mostly up to the Department of Justice because once they released they agreed to a uh, deferred prosecution agreement with Mo Wanju. The uh, Canadian ambassador to China at the time, Dominic Barty, helped to uh, cut a deal with them. And that's when the two hostages were released. So, But that is not to say the Chinese consular or the embassy did not try to get a feel or at least an understanding of how Canadians or at least Canadians of certain influence and importance, um, you know, at the time thought of the matter. Emmy Handon is a member of parliament, yeah, was a member is, of parliament I mean, at the time. Yeah, yeah we, we, I don't think I, I honestly don't think that it's it's normal for MP sitting MPs to be speaking to foreign diplomats about these sorts of things. Even off, I mean, even in those circumstances, it does. I think if anything, if if you know, we don't know who knew about that phone call, but if anything, it was that phone call, regardless of what was said, that got him out tonight. I mean, I know you're right about uh, about a lot of the things that have been building up and the publicity and so on. Well, it's nice to have Karen Woods with us this half hour, co-founder of, co-founder of the Canadian Chinese Political Affairs Committee, a nonpartisan pro-democracy organization based in Toronto. We're talking about, it's been a very big day in a politics, certainly around the whole allegations of Chinese interference in our federal elections. MP Handong, who is a Liberal MP from Don Valley North, has resigned. He'll sit as an independent. He made the announcement in the House of Commons late tonight after a report out today alleging that he had advised the Chinese Council General in Toronto that releasing the two Michaels early who are being uh, held in China would, in fact, benefit the opposition and suggested that they not do it. He, of course, vehemently denies uh, the case. Points in the story he doesn't admit to the conversation, having had a conversation with the council. Uh, Karen, it feels like now more than ever that we need to have some sort of full-fledged inquiry. I know we're waiting on the special rapporteur to talk about this before May 31st, but it feels like we need the inquiry just to clear the air now. Absolutely. And in fact, I think a public inquiry will happen. And while we're on air, I just want to make a minor correction. Uh, The Canadian ambassador ambassador to China at the time was not Dominic Barty, but rather Dominic Barton. I said his name wrong. Right, right. Dominic Barton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, the public inquiry w- would certainly help. I mean, one of the, the things that I was thinking about today is there's two things going on here that are important. We need to talk about, should we be tougher on on 
on Chinese diplomats in this country, we think that they are involved in interference. And B, how do you do that? How do we dig into this subject without exposing the diaspora to um, to a to a really to a backlash? I guess is the word that I would use. Well, I think Hamdan's case is a perfect example of why we still need uh, the foreign entities registry. I mean. Australia and the United States already have something similar in place. Now, if, you know, a foreign registry had existed prior to Handon's phone call, he would have been required to be registered. And then this backlash probably wouldn't have happened to him. So I'm thinking at the back of my mind, it's actually in his own interest to support this measure. And also, I don't think a public inquiry is enough. We need a full-scale investigation. Both MPP Vincent Key and Handon are now sitting independent, and they, at least on the record, said that they would work to clear their names. Well, let them do that. We should be, you know, they should be given the opportunity to clear their names. And that's why I think a full-fledged investigation needs to happen. RCMP needs to look at their bank transactions, donations record as well as parties members list because how else on earth are you going to clear your names from these allegations and these allegations are serious and you know you asked me if we should take in bolder steps with chinese diplomatic representatives in canada i think sunlight usually is the best disinfectant it's not a crime to speak to diplomats ambassadors in fact i'm sure all parliamentaries of all ethnic backgrounds probably do that already but you should know where the line is and it certainly was very inappropriate for Handong to have a conversation with the Chinese general counsel about you know an ongoing case of Huawei and the sensitive issue of two Canadian hostages even though I don't believe he encouraged um, the consulate to hold off on the release of the two Michaels. Yeah, Karen Woods. Thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. I appreciate you staying up late to talk about this uh, this breaking story tonight. No problem. We're going to head back to Newfoundland. I didn't realize this. I was looking this up the other day. I thought, how long has it been since Hurricane Fiona tore through Atlantic Canada? Six months. Six months now um, since it it carved a path of destruction through that region. Few areas were as badly hit as Port of Basque on Newfoundland's southwest coast. Storm surges swallowed up homes in that community. You may remember those images um, and carrying them out to sea, battering them where they stood. People lost everything. A 73-year-old woman was killed. Now, six months later, I was interested to know what was going on. I mean, the initial cleanup began pretty quick, um, but lots of homes still empty. Back in September, we spoke with Renee Roy, who lives in the community and is editor-in-chief of the local newspaper. Here's what he had to say. People talking about uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and how the wind is uh, a constant element that's, that's always going. Uh, but until you're in that kind of thing where there is just an absolute roar in your house or in your ear for 12 hours, uh, very much preys on your nerves. And, uh, you know, all of our council, my staff, uh, myself, everybody's tired, everybody's anguished, and everybody's stressed. And it's a, it's just been a hell of a week, obviously. And the whole world began crashing at a, around 7 o'clock in the morning. The whole world began crashing. Well, here we are six months later, and I was wanting to know 
what's it been what's it been like since what's going on in that community so we figured on our weekly journalist corner segment segment we'd bring back a Rene Roy we'd head back to Porto Basque to see how he is doing and how the community is doing so joining me now Rene Roy owner and editor in chief of Reckhouse Press that's a website a weekly paper based in Porto Basque Rene thank you for your time again welcome back a little bit of both, actually. Uh, there's been a lot that's been going on, and then there's other things that have kind of been at a standstill, unfortunately. So what is the lay of the land? I mean, I remember back to just the damage. We all saw the storm surge and what kind of impact it had in the community. Uh, six months later, where are we at? Have people moved back in? Are houses being fixed up? Well, we are at about, uh, I think there's 102 houses in total that have to go or have started to go. And it has to go through the provincial government. So that package of, let's say, six houses this week and 10 the next has to go through the provincial government and it has to be signed off. And then we have to put it out to tender and then the contractor has to come and demolish the homes. So there are still a lot of homes that are standing. I was talking to uh, Mayor Brian Button just on Monday and he told me that, that there are probably another 40 some, I, I want to say, I can't recall exactly, but in that neighborhood of homes that are still to come down, some neighborhoods have been completely raised. Others have only had one or two taken down and others are being under repair. There are some that are salvageable, believe it or not. I can't imagine what it must have done to the landscape of your community to have these houses either being torn down, so nothing where they once stood or condemned. Uh, it must have really changed just the, the the way it looks. Well, Ben, when you saw that apartment building that got blown off of its space and into the street, that's usually the road where my dog gets walked, just right. around the corner from here. It's It's five minutes away on foot. And it used to be that we'd walk down that street last summer and, you know, there'd be homes on either side. People would be out working on their ATVs or mowing their lawn. Now you walk by it and it's a beach. It's just gravel and open space and absolutely nothing. And it, it does kind of cast that constant reminder that once there were homes and families here and now there's just, just open space. It's, it's really a stark reminder every day. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that sees that. What's happened to everybody? I mean, when we spoke six months ago, a little a little bit uh, more than six months ago now, or a little bit less than six months ago, just after the, the surge had struck, there were a lot of people displaced. Uh, has Is everyone, I guess everyone is still scattered to some extent? Well, there's been a lot of movement in that front. When we spoke originally, it was only, I think, a couple of days after Fiona struck. And at that time, there were a huge number of families that were being put up with relatives or in hotel rooms that had opened up to accommodate them. As of now, I believe there are only three families that are still in hotel living. I know there are some other families that have purchased homes. There are others who have left uh, the community. There are others who have decided to go up to their cabins up uh, in the valley, which is just about 30 minutes up the, the highway from here. People have spread out and started to settle down, but there are there are still people that are looking for homes and answers and lodging. So we're still in that little housing crisis, but there have been a few steps made, fortunately. What's your sense? I mean, you're in the community and you speak to people in the community. What's your sense of how people are, are, are recovering from what happened six months ago? Because I suspect it's still talked about every single day. It is. There's very few places you can go and you don't 
either see the repercussions of Fiona or you hear about the impact it had on people. And I'll be honest with you, I spoke with someone who lost their home uh, in Fiona. That individual, I'm not going to name them because of their privacy, is very much struggling. It was an incredibly difficult conversation to have with this person, but it was very powerful. And these are people that have lost every single thing they owned. And the only thing they walked away with was their life. Something like that kind of trauma doesn't go away in six months or six weeks or six years. And it can last a hell of a long time. The province has has excellent resources here for mental health assistance and stress management. So they're doing their, their very best to try and help these people manage it. But this is something that didn't just affect people who lost their homes. This is something that affected every single person here and there. And it's, it's still constantly talked about, a little less granted now, but uh, it is still one of the top three conversation starters, I guess, in town. Yeah, I remember those images of Porto Basque and then the, uh, the, you know, the reports coming out, including yours at the time when everyone was really quick to help each other out and try to, you know, talk really quickly about rebuilding and getting things done. But time has a way of also not only motivating you, but it also has a way of kind of grinding you down, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. You know, there are still 29 families who are waiting on their their compensation package from the, the government in order to be able to buy a plot of land here in town to, to start again. You know, 29 families doesn't seem like a lot, but $14, $50 million has already been handed out. And some of these folks are just getting by with the little dole out that they give every month. So grinding after six months and, and just hanging on and waiting for word or waiting for an information package to come, it certainly takes a toll on you. We've gotten a lot of uh, a lot of infrastructure repaired. We've got our roads repaired, but that's more of the cosmetic end of things, I think, for a lot of families. Uh, Renee, you know, one thing that happens is, you know, everyone has their eyes fixed on you when the disaster happens, and then slowly other things happen. Everyone turns their eyes away. Uh, how how is the community feeling in terms of of that right now? Do they feel like they're still being there's still attention being paid, or that everyone's sort of forgotten about what happened except those who lived right through it? That's a really good question, Ben. And uh, to be honest, I think there's a, a mix of both. I think there's a lot of awareness still out there about how bad it was here, and there's still a lot of help being sent in. Uh, you know, there's there's a local band that uh, tours around all of the Maritimes and all of the Atlantic provinces. We're doing a fundraiser here this summer to try and bring that attention back and, and put it back in the forefront and say, hey, we're still here. But at the same time, when we talk about across the uh, the entire country, that kind of recognition and that kind of awareness, I think, has trickled down a little bit. Not to say people still aren't uh, willing to help or, or offering assistance or that, but it has certainly slowed. And that's just the natural change of time. Yeah. What about all the other things we were reading about? I mean, I, I was looking at some articles written three months after the uh, after Fiona, and there was issues around insurance. There was issues around compensation. Uh, have, have people been helped out, or is that still a conflict with for people in the community? Well, I was speaking with someone, and uh, I was told that the insurance companies all but just you know, chuck their hands and, and walked away from people. Right. Don't cover Explained storm surges, right? Instead. Yeah, didn't cover storm surge. You're covered for overwater flooding or the wind did it instead of the storm surge and you're not covered for that. So basically, maybe two or three people out of 102 receive any kind of compensation for damages sustained. 
So the insurance really became a non-starter very quickly, and and everybody was aware of that. When it comes to the monies that were donated and gifted and and contributed by the Red Cross, the provincial government, the federal government, and people all over Canada and the U.S., I can tell you that approximately 14 or $15 million has been so far put directly into the hands of families so that they can go out and purchase a new home or purchase property or whatever they'd like to do with it. There are still packages to to come out. That's what they're called. They're called compensation packages or Yona package. There are still about 29 to go out. I think it was somewhere around 60 families have received compensation packages up till now. But in regards to insurance, that's you know that that's just not going to happen. These packages have been calculated for you know your square footage, uh, your best recollection of contents of your your home the value of your land, vehicles, and so on. So it can vary wildly just based on having a larger house or three vehicles or a shed in the back or a small house with two stories. So it very much depends on what you had and what you can get with that now. What's the mood been like then? Is there the idea that that the community will rebuild? Uh, I I remember back then there were people saying, I'm never going to live on the side of the ocean again. That's it for me. Uh, Is there a sense that that um, that Port of Basque will come back maybe different, but but still solid and and whole? Or is there is there a bit of pause now thinking what the community might look like in the future? There are still homes out there that are in what they're calling the exclusion zone or the danger zone little too close to the shore for comfort. And I believe the province is looking at what to do there because there are homes that have been put on the edge of rocks 120 years ago that nowadays simply aren't safe anymore. You just got to look back six months and see what happens. So there is uncertainty in how the, the outer edges of town are going to be shaped moving ahead. But for individuals that lost everything or individuals that didn't lose everything but might not want to take the chance, I think there's a lot of up-in-the-air decisions on whether or not they want to rebuild in a new subdivision or move to a safer community, perhaps you know, to St. John's to be closer to family, for example. I have heard of people that have moved away. I have heard of people that have bought new homes. I think moving ahead, the town has a lot of I don't want to say soul searching, but they've got a lot of uh, inner reflection to do on where things are built and, and how things are built. And just for you, I mean, you live there. You t- you tell these stories, right? You report there. You know, if, if if people are wondering, if listeners are wondering, the toughest assignment is reporting from your backyard because oh, everybody knows sure. everybody knows you. So when you put something out there, they know exactly who to come talk to. When you look look ahead for your for your community, the, you know, the stories you'd like to tell, the things you'd like the rest of us to know. What's top of mind for you? Well, top of mind is the fact that uh, it, for you, you've got a different perspective on six months. For you, six months seems last summer, and you've done a world of different things in that amount of time. But for residents here, myself included, six months seems like an interminable drag because we're still waiting for answers, and we're still waiting for resolution and packages for these people that have no homes right now. So we have a different perspective here, and just because your perspective has been uh, swayed by distance doesn't mean that ours has. That's that's one of the big things I think that a lot of people uh, who don't uh, live here 
are, are struggling to to get their heads around. It's it's very much a different march of time for us. The aftermath, you know, you go back six months later, you know, then then you get a real idea of what the lasting damage has been. Yeah, and for you, that's that's what you see. But for me, I see the incremental damages and I see the incremental changes day after day, week after week. So it remains in the forefront for everybody here in Port of Basque, whereas for yourself, you would visit it every three to six or nine months and such right. and, and then get that little download, that little debrief. Yeah. And, and but you you still do. I mean, last we spoke, you, you were pretty confident about where the community would go and, and how I mean, to use a word that's way overused, but seems apt for Porto Basque resilience, right? That there yes. would be a chance for the for the community to bounce back. Um, are you still confident that'll happen? I absolutely am. And like I said, there are families that are going to go. There's no question. Families have already left. But the community itself, you know, it's been here for somewhat four to six hundred years. It's it's a Basque settlement. Just one storm isn't going to knock us off this corner of the island. I do still have confidence and I do still believe in this town as a viable community. But it's certainly going to be changed from, from now on. You know, they're, they're trying to build better berms and better breakwaters. They're trying to redesign the way that the shoreline is landscaped so that, you know, perhaps in the future it might detour some of this water away. But as I've always said, you can't build for the ocean. It's just, there's no way. But yeah, you do what you can, and uh, that's what we'll do. We'll do what we can to, to keep going here. Yeah, that's a mighty powerful force you have right on your doorstep there. Rene Roy, thank it's, you so much. Sure yeah, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, and thanks for bringing us up to date on what's happening in your community. My pleasure, Ben. Thanks. Well, guess what? We talked about Zeller's reopening a while back. It happens tomorrow. The first 12 locations will open up inside existing Hudson's Bay stores in Ontario and Alberta. There'll be 25 in all when it's all said and done. They're pretty big, 8,000 to 10,000 square feet, sort of tucked away in corners of these Bay stores. Uh, HBC shuttered the brand back in 2013. They're, you know, they're really trying to leverage some nostalgia here, you know, for those who remember those red and white signs and the lowest price in the law and club Z points and all of it. It's all back. And a video called better than I remember with the brittle star guy um, that sort of walks you through the story. Here's a little taste of that. Hey, what are you doing? Um, I- I'm just a little excited. Was, was that? Come back when we're open. Uh, Okay. There you go. Better than I remember seems to be the, the tagline for uh, lowest price is the law. Better than I remember is the New Zeller's tagline. So there'll be some different stuff in there, lifestyle categories, kitchen and bath stuff, furniture, home decor, organization and storage, baby and kids toys, clothing for men and women. Some, including the media, were given a sneak peek last night, and one of them was Retail Insider's uh, uh, publisher or, or editor-in-chief, Craig Patterson, and he joins me now from Toronto. Craig, thank you. Thank you for having me. Here we are on the eve of the return of Zellers, and people seem to be relatively excited, considering how unceremoniously it disappeared back when. Uh, people, you know, it seems to be quite the buzz within the retail industry that it's coming back, and you had a chance to see one. 
I did. Yes, yes. I got to go and actually shop at the store. It was Tuesday evening in Toronto, and uh, yeah, yeah. I can tell. I can tell you what to expect here. It's it's actually better than I thought it would be, to be honest. It's quite different. I mean, it's obviously much much smaller than what we knew of those old seller stores. I mean, the old ones were freestanding. What I remember for the last few years of of the old one that closed in about 2013 was the stores didn't look very nice, and they they smelled kind of like they had this weird plastic smell to them. I'd been, I'd been in more than one. And and honestly, I was not a big fan of the environment. I know that a lot of people have a lot of good fond memories of Zellers, and I, I didn't go to the restaurants that often. Uh, I didn't say the fondest memories of the product and whatnot, but I, I got to go to the uh, new Zellers. This was at Scarborough Town Centre in Toronto, and I was very pleasantly surprised because the products that they have, there was nothing, well, I shouldn't say nothing like the old Zellers. They do have some of the same categories that Zellers had, but there's a new line that the Hudson Bay companies brought in. It's actually from Australia. So Kmart Australia has been testing this brand called Anko. So, and actually it's a derivative from Kmart used to have these names. There was Kids and Co, Home and Co. So it's only available in Canada at Zellers. Uh, Canada is the first country in the world uh, outside of Australia to have this Anko line as it is now because Anko actually did have some stores in the United States from 2018 to 2020. This is something that most people don't know because I did some homework on it. Yeah. A leader for them, like something to try to get you in the door, right? There's a, a new brand along with all the nostalgia stuff. Yes, absolutely. So really what the Zellers is, is it's kind of a shell of nostalgia to start. So you've got this interior that looks like a Zellers store, but it looks much better, to be honest, because it's new. Money was put into it. So and I'd say that the layout, at least what I saw at Scarborough Town Center, was quite well thought out. Like it was not a difficult space for me to shop in. And I actually spent over $300 in there. I'll, I'll disclose that. Did you? Um, I, I did. I did. I, I didn't expect I was going to spend anything. So uh... yeah. So so they've got this out. Uh, I, I noticed, of course, one of the things that they're trying to do with this is appeal to the nostalgia factor. So there is some merch, right? There's Zeller's merch, which is interesting because I've seen people. You know, there's been some videos of people wearing it and so on. Yes, that's right. I've got a Zeller's hoodie. I'm not wearing it right now, but I'll probably put it on afterwards if it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> um, they've got that. They've got some T-shirts that say Club Z. There was another one about Zeddy. I can't remember what it was because I wasn't as familiar. But the Zeddy Cub Club, right? The uh, yeah, the kids one. Yes. Yeah. I, there's going to be more coming though. I spoke to the president of Hudson's Bay and, and a few other people that last night. You know, there there will be more stuff coming with this with this Zeller's concept. This is just an initial launch, but. There are a few different brands in there. You've got some Disney stuff, and it's mainly toys. You've got Mattel, a few other smaller brands. But really, this Anko brand is the one that anchors uh, these new Zeller stores as they were. And I was going to say, did you get a sense from them? Because I think from the get-go, there was some skepticism about just how how much the Bay was really going to invest in this, that this was kind of a nostalgia play and that it wasn't much else. But did you get a sense that maybe it's bigger than that for the Bay, that they might be actually looking at this as a way to kind of put themselves, give themselves a bit of a lift? Definitely. I think so. I, I think the passion that I saw there, this wasn't just a, an activation for a brand or or something for litigation, which I know that some have speculated on, including right. myself, to be honest. Yes, but, yes that's right. Because um, the Zellers in Quebec, right? Someone competed. Right, right. Of course. Absolutely. So, uh, no, I mean, I, I think that this is actually a retail strategy that's being put forward. Again, it's it's primarily the Anko brand being introduced to the Canadian market. But, you know, who remembers the old private label of Zellers? I, I actually had to look it up. It was truly. I had forgotten right. that yes <laughs> completely forgot I don't, yes 
I don't think it was that great, to be honest. The old brand. Whereas this new one, I mean, I, I bought um, some essential oils. They're five dollars each. I mean, you know, the, the furniture department is is tremendous. I, I bought cutlery. Um, I was actually very impressed. Furniture, really? yeah, yeah. Some chair, chairs, pillows, uh, all kinds of uh, blankets, duvets. Oh, so it's, uh, so, so it's that that varied in that small a space, or they have that much different on, different different things on offer. I mean, it sounds a bit like a miniature version of a Bay store, which is interesting because it feels like they're competing against themselves. Although I guess they're not. Ah, you know, a little bit. I mean, definitely some of the product categories you'll see in other parts of a Hudson's Bay store. But really the selection at, at uh, the Zeller stores, it's, it's more like a, a capsule collection. There's quite a bit less than you'd get in a Hudson's Bay store, although the home furnishings was, were quite extensive. I was impressed, you know, lots of knives and forks and cutlery and plates and, uh, you know, quite a bit of that there. But uh, it is still obviously these spaces are only somewhere between eight and 10,000 square feet. So they're quite smaller. They're less than, say, a tenth of the size of what a Zeller store used to be. So. Right. How much space does it take up? Does it look like, uh, I mean, I think we're all familiar perhaps with walking to the Bay and seeing other brands like Topshop in there, taking up a bit of space, but not a ton. Is that the same with the sellers? I mean, I think what they've done is they've tucked them away, I'd say, quote unquote, in a corner, but it's okay. a good chunk of the store. It's not just one little corner. We're talking eight to 10,000 square feet, which That's would big. be, yeah, yeah, it's the size of a good Dollarama, if people know that, like a, a yeah. fairly large Dollarama store. I'm just trying to think what would be in that size that people could relate to. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, that's paints a picture for sure. Not opening everywhere yet, but 25 planned for across the country. That's right. Yeah, I think 12 open Thursday morning and then uh, the rest 13, I guess it would be will open after that. And I think there's more to come. I did speak to some management. I mean, they were kind of off the record conversations, but um, I think there are plans to roll this out more. But also they want to hear from Canadians. I mean, they were asking us for our opinions uh, as journalists shopping in the store. Wow. And I was giving my opinions. One of them was I said, bring in more athletic wear because I was very impressed. You know, I'm not trying to sell Zellers, but I was actually, you know, I like I said, I spent over three hundred dollars, so clearly yeah. I, I didn't hate it. Well, they, 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 they clearly they clearly did a good job. I mean, I think you know the, the Zellers of old. Unfortunately, I mean the whole franchise started to kind of slip, and you could see that when you walked in, right? I mean, I've been in a few over the years, uh, and you could feel it. But uh, I guess the, the the one that everyone's wondering about, of course is the food. I know you just said you didn't eat often there. I mean, I think all of us have eaten at Zellers at some point in our lives, but I understand the food is back, not a full menu, and they seem to be small, like there's there are mini versions of of those big Z, the big Z burger and so on. Yes, yes. You know, I, I, I didn't have much of an appetite last night, but they were passing around the food, so uh, people really seemed to be enjoying it. But yeah, they were smaller grilled cheese sandwiches and slider burgers, and uh, I think they had poutine there as well. Shake Shack announced today that they're coming to Canada. I gather they had a big, I didn't know this, they had a big pop-up in Toronto in 2017, and there's always appetite for those American franchises, aren't there, here, uh, at least for a while. So they're coming in. That, that must be a big deal. There's a lot of excitement, uh, absolutely. I, people have been asking about this forever. They've been asking me forever. I've been tracking this because I think we probably know where the first two locations are going. I can't say yet, but uh, definitely this is something we've been watching. You know what's interesting, though, is Shake Shack actually did, before the pandemic, have a location chosen on King Street in downtown Toronto. Oh, really? But ended up not, yeah, they ended up not follow, following through with the plans. This has happened quite a bit, unfortunately. Right. So Shake Shack decided to, to to put it on pause. But now here they are. They're coming back. So that that's, I mean, 35 locations they want to open across the country by 2035. But it makes sense, of course, the first one will be in Toronto. How well do these franchises tend to fare when they cross the border? Because, you know, people associate it with a trip to the U.S. I've been to a few Shake Shacks over the years. It's good, uh, but it's competitive here. It is. It is. I still think that it's got enough brand awareness. I mean, I'm seeing the excitement and even we put out an article and there's a lot of readers who are quite excited by this. It's probably going to be a runaway success. I mean, I know there's a lot of food service businesses out there in that space, but 
The one thing, though, it will be the pricing I'm curious about because the cost of beef, you know, is quite high and, and I don't know how they're going to source it, but how much is a Shake Shack burger going to cost in Canada? I'm not sure because yeah. it does cost more money. You know, it costs, it's harder to run a business in Canada and it's more expensive. So, but I think even if the prices are fairly high, people are going people to go. at least want to treat themselves a few times. So I don't know. I'll go maybe once. I mean, I'm a, a relatively healthy eater, so it's not a place that I'm going to be. Yeah, going you to don't regularly, want to go there. But- every day. What is it about Shake Shack that's that's so appealing, I wonder? Because it is just, for, for someone who's never been there, it is just kind of a higher-end burger joint, right? I mean, it's not luxurious. It's not really a sit-down place. It is like any other kind of fast food burger place, but it's slightly more expensive and it, it kind of, it, it has hit a certain niche audience. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of buzz. Uh, I think that's part of it, but uh, clearly people like the food. They, they must have, you know, well, I could say they do have a product that people are enjoying to eat. So, um, I think that's part of it. it. It's everything together. It's the brand ethos. It's people having these meals that they're enjoying. And, and these restaurants are successful in the United States. So clearly yes. they're doing something right around the actual food service itself, not to mention the environment. And uh, you always have to have the right location, hopefully, as well. Yeah, I guess they'll, they're they taking this relatively slowly. So opening up in Toronto first, then again, 35 locations in Canada by 2035, they're saying now. Let's leave this off with Nordstrom, because last we spoke, Nordstrom was, had just announced that it was bailing, that it was closing. And uh, the, the sales are on, but the discount sales have left a lot to be desired so far. I've been seeing the old 5% off signs. What kind of feedback are you getting on that now? Nordstrom's clearance sale hasn't been quite the uh, the event that people were hoping it would be so far, at least. No, or at least not initially, because I'm sure that there's going to be deeper discounting. Uh, 5% saves you the GST. It's terrible. Um, this is the liquidator. I don't want to blame Nordstrom for this. Nordstrom does not have a hand at this point in setting the prices, but this is actually the company that's liquidating on their behalf. And I, I started seeing things yesterday morning, and I burst out laughing. I thought it was a joke. But I, I live a block from a Nordstrom rack store in Toronto, and I did go over, and everything was 5% off the lowest ticketed price. I mean, you get a little better deal at Nordstrom Rack, obviously, because it's an right. off-price retailer, but it almost seems like a slap in the face. I don't know why, but I think a lot of people were insulted, and uh, there were a lot of comments out there. I mean, as Canadians, you know, we shop at places like Hudson's Bay, like we talked about, uh, and then we hear about places like Winners that are 40 to 60% off the regular price. Well, that's what makes 5% look terrible, because I can go to Hudson's Bay and probably get 50% off all kinds of stuff right now. So... Yeah, it seemed, it seemed, it seemed, I mean, I know they're not in the market right now for winning hearts and minds in this country anymore, but it seemed like even if, even though it's not Nordstrom, it is the liquidator, 5% seemed pretty bad. And if we, we bring it all back to where we started, um, I guess tomorrow will be a big day for the Bay, who are sort of one of the last big department stores in this country right now. And it's going to be a big day for them when they open up the Zellers. I don't think we realized early on that they were actually going to bank on this a little bit to try to kind of per- perk up the brand. I think so. I mean, I think part of the plan is to try to drive foot traffic uh, to the Hudson's Bay stores. Um, Zellers itself, if it takes off, could uh, be considerably higher sales per square foot than what you'd see in the Bay uh, store generally. Not having the restaurants in the stores, I think, is uh, a bit of a miss, but this is a challenge. I mean, they don't have the space or the kitchen facilities, I think, uh, for that type of investment. Craig Patterson, uh, enjoy your $300 worth of Zeller's swag or stuff that you bought. And thanks so much for your insight on this. I'm glad you got a, we got a chance to speak to someone who's already been inside. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ben. Speaking of, um, speaking of how much you should spend on something, we've been talking about haircuts uh, this half, this, in the last little while. I was explaining that I once got a very bad haircut in uh, Scotland, it had nothing to do with the price. It had to do with the fact that coming from Montreal, I didn't know what 
what the reference to the razor settings was. And you, if you got your haircut at a sort of your run of the mill barber in Edinburgh, they basically asked, "What do you want? One, two, or three? And I thought that's an odd way of asking me how I want my hair to look. But uh, whatever, give me the one. And of course, that's that's a very low setting on a on a razor. So off went my hair. So I, I, I yeah, it wasn't a great look. It wasn't a great look. And it was the fall, and it hadn't been sunny in a while, and I was pale. And yeah, it wasn't wasn't it wasn't good. It wasn't good. Um, but I'm not the only one who's had that happen to me. We've had some listeners talk about the same thing. One listener who's in Dublin had the same thing happen to them. And suddenly yesterday, people were noticing that Ontario's premier's hair was looking a little shorter than usual. And Doug Ford, um, you know, I don't whether you voted for him or not, the man knows how to tell a good story. And here's that one. Every guy out there understands this. So you go into the barber. And I went down south for a few days, so I go into Walmart. I'm a cheap son of a gun, so I see the, you know, $15 haircut or whatever. I walk in there and, you know, I said, I, I just want to trim, just a little, little trim. And every guy knows what number they are. Number one, the lower you get, the more they take off their hair. So I'm about a number four. It's just, you know, a little bit of a trim. So I sit down in the chair, this guy grabs my hair like this and starts shaking. I'm thinking, you know, the problem was, Colin, he didn't speak English and I didn't speak Spanish. So all of a sudden he pulls out the shaver and zoom, right across the thing. He must have used not even a one, a zero. And I said, senor, like, look at, look what you did. One side's full, one side's not. So then I had to get the other side done and needless to say it cost me $26. I've never paid $26 for a haircut in my life and I had to give the guy a $10 haircut but anyway he went right down to the concrete as you can see there. It's, I'll tell you I've, I've, I've never experienced anything in my life. The shortest haircut I've ever had. Well as the kids would say the haircut slaps. Oh man All it's right, going to take till August to grow this thing back. The haircut slaps. Well, we've all had a bad haircut. What happens? How does it happen? How do you fix it? Natalie Grunberg Ferreira is co-owner of the Natural Hair Salon in Victoria. Natalie, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is a bit of an odd one. What did you make of that story? Because, you know, I mean, I I had it happen to me, but it was my own fault. And I feel like it was kind of Doug Ford's fault, but not really. Hard to tell. Well, I kind of think that he kind of deserved it. And I thought it was so funny. And I always think, well, you also get what you pay for, too. So you definitely don't want to cheap out on a haircut. He learned yeah, a that, lesson. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, I think he likes to that. Like, that's his, that's his persona. That's his brand, right? Like, I would never pay yeah. twenty six bucks for a haircut. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> that's. Uh, I suppose. I suppose if you, um, I mean, so I've had some good haircuts that weren't expensive. But you're right. You know, you, yeah. you get you, you. You can get what you. It's one thing you probably shouldn't spend too much time trying to save. You know, you should. Yeah, you get what you pay for. Well, it's true. I mean, I, I, I think if you do try to save money and the haircut's bad, then you have to spend more money to get it fixed. So again, you know, you're not really ahead when you try to cheap out. <laughs> But so you're how, right. how, there are yeah go ahead I was going to say yeah how does it how does it work when you have it because I'm sure it's happened to you I mean and, and and how does it happen how does it work when someone doesn't like their haircut what's that like yeah. what's that what's that mood well, like luckily for us most of the time we're correcting other people's bad haircuts from other uh-huh. salons and whatnot so we're kind of um you know we're we're the ambulance you know being called in to do some <laughs> rescue and that's awesome because we definitely are the heroes in that situation but right. there are situations where you know the consult 
um, people got confused or the client changed their mind um, or perhaps they're going through something emotional and they wanted bangs and then they got them. They didn't want bangs. And, you know, we're dealing with humans, not machines. So, um, you know, things can change and things can go sideways. And all we can do is, you know, offer our remedy, right? You know, listen to them, really hear what they're trying to say. You know, we have many stylists, so they could see someone else. And, you know, worst case scenario, we're seeing them for free haircuts for a few haircuts until they love it. (laughs) Really? Uh, Yeah. I I don't imagine. The customer is always right. So. True. True. Where does it, where does, where does it usually happen? Like in this case, clearly there was a, Clearly, there was some communication issues. He even pointed it out, you know, the, 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 the gentleman cutting his hair didn't speak English. He doesn't speak Spanish. Um, right. So there were some communication issues there. I, I guess this is something you want to really clear up with the person about to cut your hair, regardless of the language. I mean, I've had my hair cut by people who didn't speak English. You can pretty much yeah. sort of walk your, the person through it to what you want, right? I, 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 guess, yeah. I guess you need to be exact. Well, and, you know, actually, most of the communication that we do person to person is nonverbal. So even if you don't speak the same language, you know, if you're a skilled person and, you know, behind the chair, you should be able to understand what the client wants. And nowadays, you know, clients bring in full mood boards on their, you know, Pinterest app. So you can really get a visual. So there shouldn't be too much room for error. So, But, you know, sometimes it happens. Yeah. Yeah, I, I suppose I, I mean, in in the case of Doug Ford, I, there's really not much anyone can do for him other than nature, right? Let it grow back a bit. Absolutely, and I wonder if this guy knows who he is and was sort of, you know, you know, hamming <laughs> it up a little. <laughs> I wonder. I did it. Is that does that happen? Do you ever? I mean, let's be honest. Do you ever? You know, depending on how much you like the client, does it affect how you give them how their haircut works? Um, you know, we're professionals, so no, yes. it's not supposed to. But, you know, we're also, like I said, not machines, too. So, you know, there are times where you are really connected to a client and then other times where, you know, you're not so into the client. You know, maybe you don't like what they said in your chair, you know, their politics or um, maybe they're rude. And um, but you still have to act the professional and you definitely can't cut their hair too short because you don't like them. <laughs> yes. That would be yes, terrible. Yeah. <laughs> And, and generally, when there's a, when there is a communication issue, I mean, the thing is, we've all been to barbers, right? Like those barbers where it's, you know, I have been where they just, I mean, they're just cutting your hair in a matter. You're just in that chair for about eight minutes, and you're done, right? Right. It's all exactly. it's all very quick, and I'm assuming that's where Doug Ford wound up. But um, but but I guess at that point, you know, is it generally the customer's fault, or is it generally does it is the well, miscommunication everyone's fault? I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are places you can go, a good barbers, they've been doing it for a long time, and um, they're really good at their craft. And so yeah, you you know, your hair might look like, you know, your neighbors down the street, so you're not getting a personalized cut. But you should be able to get a good cut from someone that's skilled and experienced, and it shouldn't have to cost too, too much. But you know, at our salons, we're a luxury salon, we actually offer personalized cuts. So right. our stylists are trained to, you know, really listen to what you want and then give you a cut so that you don't look like your mother-in-law or your father-in-law. Like, you know, right. we don't want cookie unless cutter you cut want to the famous bowl. Yeah, yeah. Unless you want to, unless you're unless going you for the bowl to. cut, it's going to come back. But yeah, that's, ago, you, yeah. you know, you pay more for a more personalized cut. 
you get a bit of a cookie cutter if you're going to more of an assembly line barber. Oh, yeah. Years ago, my dad, uh, my dad, my uncle, and myself, we all went to the same barber for a while and then realized one day at Christmas that we all had exactly the same haircut. And it was time to, 100%. Time, it time is to like move the, on. Exactly. Time to move on. Yeah, this goes <laughs> back a, a while. <laughs> tell, tell me about the tipping, because one of the things that stood out there to me with uh, with Doug Ford was he kind of begrudged the 10 buck yeah. tip that he had to leave. And I thought, well, wait a second. Like, yeah, okay, you didn't like the haircut too much, but so what is the rule? Um, what what is the right way to to tip? And we all been we've talked a lot about tipflation these days, uh, but what is yeah. the right way to, right way to tip the person who holds sharp objects above your head? Absolutely. Well, you know, really on our POS machine, we don't even really give you the option to under tip. We're trying to encourage you to tip your stylist, although the stylists are well paid. They're getting good wages at, at our salons, but not everywhere. So generally, the tipping starts at 18%, so 18, right. 20, 25. So people are very generous, and uh, the stylists, at least at our salon, work very hard for those tips. And those tips, you know, represent a, a large portion of their salary. So really, it's not just about supporting a business. It's supporting people in very expensive situations in cities like we, we are in Victoria. So you're helping right. everyone, you know, make their rent, pay their groceries. Um, and, you know, generous tipping is sort of the way it is now. I mean, I tip for my coffee. I tip for my muffin. Like, it's nonstop tipping now. So, it is. I is. You know, yeah. I noticed that, that a lot of places – so the first place I ever sort of was given the option to tip 20% was where I get my haircut. Um, yeah. And then I noticed lots of other people. And I thought, okay, well, you know, often when you're getting your haircut, that's probably the most – I mean, there are other people out there. But getting your haircut is probably one of the most um, – it's one of the most personal experiences you get, right? So if you're going to tip yeah. anyone, you tend to tip that person. And then I realized, yeah. wait a second, you're right. The person serving me, the person basically getting a muffin out of a tray and putting it on, putting it down <laughs> in front of me is also asking for 20%. Do you feel like it's it, the tipping has gotten to a situation where sometimes people are, people lump everyone in together in this whole tipflation thing? Yeah, I do think so. And I've kind of had to, you know, take a moment to think about where am I going to do most of my tipping now? Because you really, you can't tip everywhere. And you're right, you know, your stylist, you develop a personal relationship with them. You you care about them. You, you might want to help them. You learn a bit about their lives. And you also respect that they do education and they um, do professional development to make sure that, you know, you're getting the best cut and they really understand you. So they're, they're definitely the people you want to tip. You know, the person just reaching for a muffin, you could probably skip the tip at least some of the time um, because we all are on budgets now. So I would say, you know, tipping your stylist is a great place to be. You know, your stylist is a person supporting a family, you know, too. So I always think about that. And, and I think about supporting small businesses and definitely businesses in our downtown core. And those businesses are made up of people that have to pay parking downtown. So you need right. to help them. <laughs> yeah, that that applies to everyone. Any last thoughts on Doug yeah. Ford? I mean, that hair will grow back. He'll be fine. Plus, he had a great story out of it too, which people now we're talking about it. So obviously, it worked. Well, but uh, I, I, I guess think he should he... be just fine in Ontario. It's still cold, and <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you even have snow out there, so he should just wear a toque. <laughs> you should wear a toque. And I, I guess if you don't like your hair, probably the best thing to do with it is just try it on for a bit. You never know, right? You never know. Sometimes it looks. Sometimes a change will do you good. Well, and, you know, in the end of the day, it is just hair. So it is going to grow back. And you're right. Just be open to it. Maybe it's the universe giving you a message. It's time for a new look. 
Natalie, thank you so much for uh, for walking us through this one tonight. Much appreciated. Absolutely. You call me anytime. Sure thing. If I have if I have a disaster, I'll be running to your place. You yes, go. you've come to the natural hair salon. Exactly. <laughs>